Okay. Today we uh, start Genesis chapter 32, which means uh, doing our math that we finished chapter 31 last week. <coughs> and uh, we were, uh, I think we were uh, doing about verse uh, 43. Started on verse 43 or so, and down through the <clears throat> through the end of the uh, chapter of 31 last week. So uh, let's see if we can remember anything from last week's lesson. What do you remember? I was just struck by the difference in they were both making the covenant, but they looked at things so differently. One of them looked to this God, and one of them looked to that God. One of them said, so you won't be treat my daughters. And one of them said, you won't attack me. It was just, they were making the same covenant, but they were looking at it totally differently, totally. And we do that so many times. We can get an argument point and another person, and you're agreeing, but you're not agreeing on the same thing. Uh, she, she haven't, is she referring to something that happened there at the house yesterday or this week? Uh, <laughs> I really don't know what you're talking about, Debbie. <laughs> no, that's really true. We do have a, we do have a, times like that when we're really seeing things from different perspectives. <clears throat> One of the reasons uh, in this particular case why they're seeing things from two different perspectives is why. Okay, yeah. So we talked about the two different lines uh, that are really a theme all the way through the book of Genesis. Uh, and, uh, and that's really crystallized for us uh, uh, in the lesson last week that there are two distinct lines, the people of the blessing, the people of the promise, and uh, what we often refer to as the seed of the serpent. My podium's wiggling today for some reason. Ron, would you come up and stick your shoe under that for me? Sorry. Well, I, thought, I thought your lesson last week was really, really good. Um, it's always good, but I thought last week was so nice to be like never have seen you know. But you even said that was a line of demarcation. That last, that chapter mm-hmm. was really where he became not part of another plan of his own. Yeah. And then also the other thing was about a lot of one of the other things was about the difference in the pillar where Jacob built the pillar mm-hmm. and that it was his um, how God appeared to him so the pillar kind of represented his God, the covenant was laid in that God was there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then he was also the advocate because that was what bound down in the, in the covenant. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But um but then I do think that was funny about how when Laban starts talking and that he says, this piece that I, that I put, or whatever, he yeah. said, this piece that I've made, yeah. he didn't do it. He didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> he just totally took credit for it. Like his, yeah, yeah, what do you call that? Yeah. You have anybody like that in your life takes credit for everything? <laughs> yeah. We talked about some of the, mentioning that, we talked about some of the characteristics that we see in Laban that are characteristic of, of the uh, unrighteous line, so to speak. What are some of those characteristics? Very self-centered. Okay. When someone's not submitted to God, when someone, when someone's life is not surrendered to the Lord, then everything really is about them. <laughs> it's about them and how things relate to them and what's going on in their life. And uh, then Laban sees everything pretty much from his own perspective. He sees it, you know, it's just, you know, my life and what I'm doing and what I'm accomplishing and what threatens me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What else? Jacob, he expected Jacob to live according to his faith. He's a non-believer, but he expected, he expected Jacob yeah. to 
believe. Yeah. And unbelievers do that with us, don't they? You know, if we make a profession of faith, if we claim to be a Christian, they expect us to live that way, and they are offended, and I think disappointed when we don't. And uh, so, you know, sometimes it might be a little irritating to us as pagan over here who doesn't believe in God, doesn't trust God, or whatever, and 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 who are they to preach to us? But it's that's a that's a good influence on our life. To remember that the the unbeliever is over there and he's watching us and he's looking at us and he really wants to see us live it out. And uh, and if we don't, it really it not only undermines our testimony, but it takes away his hope. It takes away the the hope that there really is something there of substance to what we're saying if we don't live by by what we say. So here's Laban and he's a pagan and he just you know he's wheeling and dealing and betraying people and everything, but he wants Jacob to live according to the according to the God that he supposedly worships. So justify. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I think there's probably a little bit of both of that, don't you? I mean, because I've, I've seen both in the unbelievers. Yeah, yeah. And I think probably in some people there's a little bit of both, you know. Uh, if, if we do mess up, then they, they use it to justify themselves and whatever. But, but, the, but on the other hand, it, it, uh, it does take away, to, to some degree, any hope that there could be anything different about life. So, yeah. No, that's a good point, Mike. I appreciate you pointing that out. Anything else? We did talk too about about the fact that we have uh, we really have two destinies here represented. At the end, uh, at the end we see Laban leaves and he just goes back to his home. He goes back to his country, and uh, uh, and then and then Jacob, as we'll see today, he goes on uh, to what lies ahead in his future. And there's there's really two different destinies. And then there's no more of this uh, with. With uh, Abraham or Abraham's descendants, there's no more of this where we're going to go back to the home country. We're going to get a wife from the family back home. Okay? There's no more of that. There's now, a, there's now this permanent break that takes place between Laban and Jacob. So there's this permanent break then between the Hebrews and the Arameans. And, uh, and we see that crystallized force in this passage that, that the people of God and the people of the world really have two separate destinies. And they really are going to separate places. And, uh, and uh, we really have no place left for us in the world. Okay, well, today we pick up chapter 32. And we've really, we've really come now to this kind of uh, watershed, life-transforming event in the life of Jacob. We've alluded to it. We've referred to it a number of times as we've gone through this story of Jacob's life up to this point. We keep referring ahead to this encounter or this experience that he has at the Jabbok River. Okay? And, and we are now approaching that event. So, so here in chapter 32, in the first part or so of chapter 33, we, we really begin to look at this, this life-altering, life-transforming event in, in the life of Jacob. We've already been through one. This whole sojourn in the land of Haran, in uh, Paden Aram, uh, that whole sojourn, as we see, has, has been transformative in his life. But this really is the crisis point that we've reached. And, and to be honest with you, as, I've been, as we've been going through the life of Jacob, you know, I've been kind of chomping at the bit because I want to get to this part of the story because this is really a neat part of the story. It's a very frightening part of the story. But it really is a neat part of the story. And this is the life-transforming point in the life of Jacob where his name is changed. And Jacob ceases to be Jacob and becomes Israel. And what happens here in these next uh, few lessons that we're going to have over the next uh, two or three weeks or so about the life of Jacob, uh, what happens here and the things we look at here, uh, uh, what happens in Jacob's life, is so transformative that from this point forward, all of Jacob's descendants will be referred to in reference to this point in Jacob's life. When we speak 
of the descendants of Jacob. We don't speak of the Jacobites, do we? What do we call them? We call them the Israelites. Okay. And today, when we speak of the nation of Israel, what are we doing? We are alluding back to this event, this life transforming event in the life of Jacob. This is where Jacob ceases to be a heel grabber and becomes one who wrestles with God and triumphs. And so it really is, to me, it's a, it's a, it's a remarkable story uh, and there's just a lot of meat in here and so we want to really dig into it and spend some time really thinking about what happens here. But within the context of the story as it unfolds, uh, Jacob, when he was back in Padanaram, the Lord told him, he says, now I want you to go back home. I want you to go back to your country and I want you to go back to your relatives. Okay. So Jacob then, as we saw, he leaves Padanaram. He kind of sneaks out of town in the dark of the night and, uh, and, he, and he heads off, uh, heading as fast as he can towards the hill country of Gilead. Uh, and, and to head back home. But we focused in that whole part of the story, we've, we focused on the story about him getting away from Laban and Laban's pursuit and all that sort of thing. But Jacob really here is kind of caught between the devil and the deep blue sea, so to speak, right? Because, he's, because as he's moving from Paden Aram and he's moving back home, he's really caught between the two greatest fears in his life. He's caught between the two scariest things in his life. One of them is Laban on the backside. And so as he's fleeing out of Paden Aram and as he crosses the Euphrates River and he heads south into the land of Gilead, uh, he's constantly looking over his shoulder for fear that Laban's coming. And of course, ultimately, Laban is coming. Okay? So he's looking over his shoulder and he's trying to get south as fast as he can. But that in itself presents a dilemma to him, which is what? Esau, the sooner he gets south, the sooner he has to confront this guy who has sworn to kill him, his own twin brother. Okay, so he's really caught in this in this uh, vice grip, if you will, between these two great threats or two great fears in his life. And and he heads. So uh, as he's heading south, he's he's wrestling with both of those issues. And so finally, he's managed by God's grace and by God's intervention. He's managed somehow to to shed this first threat, this first fear, which is Laban. But Laban is the lesser of the evils that he has to encounter. The greater one still lies ahead. And that's what he begins to confront today. So let's pick up the story in verse 30, uh, chapter 32 and verse one. It says, now, as Jacob went on his way. The angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named the place Mahanaim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants. I have sent to tell you, my Lord, that I might find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau. And furthermore, he's coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the, then the company which is left will escape. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan. And now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. 
For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. And we'll stop uh, there, see if we can get that far today. But so Jacob has now had this covenant uh, with Esau or with Laban, excuse me, and Laban leaves and goes back home in peace and blesses the children and his daughters, etc., and leaves and goes back home. And so then Jacob now is moving further south. And if you kind of remember in your mind our little map up here, we have we have Paden Aram up here, and we have uh, and we have what we think of today as the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea down here in the Jordan River. And he's moving down now along what we call the Transjordan, the site to the east of, of uh, to the east of what we think of as <coughs> excuse me the Sea of Galilee and the east of the Jordan River. And he's coming down, and there's a river that flows almost due uh, west, uh, east and west, flows uh, to the west and flows into the Jordan River uh, about halfway between the two seas. Okay, and that's called the Jabbok River. And, uh, and, and, and uh, Jacob is moving down and he's coming down uh, to the Jabbok, basically at about the point where the Jabbok uh, flows into the Jordan River. So there's a reference here uh, to the Jordan River and there'll be a reference later to the Jabbok. But this is the point where, uh, where he is, uh, he's reaching and he's coming very close now. Uh, he's coming very close to home and he's also coming very close to the area where uh, uh, where Esau is located in the land of Seir or the country of Edom. OK, and later in later in the story of scriptures, we encounter a lot about Edom and the Edomites and all that sort of thing. OK, uh, and uh, that's an area to the east of the Dead Sea. And uh, and that's apparently where uh, where uh, Esau is located at this particular point. I don't think he's living there permanently. But I think apparently he's in the process of subduing the land uh, because later in the story, we'll see where he actually makes a permanent move over into the land of Seir. But it seems like at this point, he's in the process of subduing the land of Seir. He's chasing out the Horites who live there and he is subduing it for a place for him to live. OK, we have learned about Esau. If you remember back when when uh, Jacob stole the blessing back in chapter 27, when Jacob stole Esau's blessing and then Esau came into his father and he found out that Jacob had already gotten the blessing and he pled and he pled and he pled with his father don't you have any blessing for me then we finally get this what we call a blessing but it doesn't really sound like much of a blessing that 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 Isaac gives to Esau and part of that blessing is that he would live by his sword so this is a man who lives by the sword and he is apparently at this particular time in the story, he's apparently in the process of driving the Horites out of Seir. OK, he's in the process of conquering this land that he wants to live in and he wants to grow his family up in. OK, and, and so this is the kind of guy that we're talking about here when we're talking about Esau. And Jacob's coming now and he's approaching the river, uh, the river Jabbok, uh, close to the Jordan River. And uh, and as he does so, what does he encounter? Okay, he encounters some angels. Oh, I don't actually tell us how many, but he encounters some angels of the Lord. Yeah. Now, does that remind you of anything? Does that call anything to mind? Yeah. Yeah. Reminds us of Bethel, doesn't it? When Jacob was leaving the promised land, he was leaving on his sojourn 20 years earlier. He stops at Bethel and he has this dream. And in this dream, he sees a ladder that rests on the, on the, on the land and goes up to heaven. And he sees or a stairway and he sees the angels of God ascending and descending on this ladder. Okay. Uh, now, what's interesting is this term, the angels of God, is only used twice in all, of the, in all of the Old Testament. One is at Bethel and the other is here. OK, so it's like the narrator is trying to, in our minds, to make a connection between what's happening here as Jacob is now approaching this great crisis point in his life where he's returning back home uh, that he's trying to make a connection in our minds 
between him coming back home and him having left 20 years earlier, that when he left, when he left, he had this dream of the angels of God and then God spoke to him and God gave him this promise about being with him as he was gone, etc. And so it's really like what's happened now is that is that uh, Jacob has heard God's commandment when he was back in Padanaram. He heard God's command to go back to his country and go back to his relatives. And he has now obeyed that and he is returning home. And as he returns home, he gets this welcoming party. Okay, I don't, I don't know any other way to put it. You know, uh, Some commentators see ominous things here. I, I don't see anything ominous here in this. I think this is... I think this is Jacob's welcoming party. The scriptures are pretty clear that, uh, for example, in Psalms, the passage that the Lord later, uh, or is actually quoted to the Lord later in, the, in his temptation in the garden, but it's a, it is a precious psalm and we should think of it not just in the light of the temptation in the wilderness, but, but in the light of how it's first given in, in, in Psalm. Uh, at the psalm 94, I believe it is, where he says, he will give his angels charge concerning you okay and and uh, and then in the new testament we're instructed very clearly that that in in the book of hebrews that the angels are ministering spirits that are sent out to minister to and to serve those people who are the inheritors of eternal life okay and so uh you know i i can't think of and and maybe i'm wrong here but i can't think of any example in scripture where angels ever represent any threat to believers. Where there ever, there's ever any... I mean, it's not that... Uh, obviously, there's oftentimes when people, when believers see angels and they are afraid, but they're afraid because of their glory and they're afraid because of their majesty, but they're not afraid because they're posing some threat to the believer. Now, clearly, they oftentimes pose a threat to unbelievers, and we see that many times in scriptures. But, but I don't see any reason to see anything ominous in this encounter that Jacob has. I think what's happening here is that Jacob is approaching this really terrifying moment in his life. And he really needs to know that God's hand is on his life and that God's hand is in this. You know, we didn't talk about it, about that, that dream he had or whatever back in Paden Aram when God said to go back to his country and back to his relatives. We didn't really talk about this aspect of this. But when God was saying, go back to your country and go back to your relatives, what was he saying to him? Leave the land of promise. Pardon? No, when he's saying go back, when he's in Paden Aram and he's saying go back, what is he saying? Go back to your country and go back to your relatives pardon to your brother you know it all sounds pretty good because what we focus on is oh he's getting go back home he's getting go back to his family now it's been 20 years he's getting go back but there there's really something pretty terrifying in that i mean the last word he had about esau was esau wanted to kill him and so really that instruction that God gave to Jacob to go back, and as Jacob goes back, as Jacob obeys God and begins to go back, he really has to do that in faith. God says, you go back to your relatives and I will prosper you. He really has to cling to that. Because as far as he knows, Esau really doesn't think real highly of him. And when God says to him, I want you to go back to your relatives, one of the things God's saying is, it's time to make things right, Jacob. And I think that Jacob's obedience to God there in obeying the Lord and going back home is, a, is an implicit statement in Jacob's, in Jacob's life that he is willing now to make things right with his brother. And as we go through the passage today, I think you'll see some things that indicate that Jacob really has had a change of heart. Okay, so so anyway, he's headed south, but 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 
he wants to make things right with his brother. He's been told to go back to his relatives. He's been t- and incidentally, not only does he need to make things right with Esau, he needs to make things right with Isaac as well. So he's been told to go back home and to make things right. But he's facing this tremendous fear, this tremendous sense of uncertainty about, about everything. And, and, and what Jacob really needs at this point is to know to really be reassured at this point, God, you're really in this thing. This thing's of God. Your hand is on my life. I've had the opportunity a couple times in the last number of months to to listen to the stories of a couple guys. One was just yesterday. We went up to a 50th anniversary uh, uh, celebration for some friends of ours up in Oklahoma City. and uh, And there was a... Uh, a couple there that we uh, ended up sitting next to and had a chance to talk to during the meal time, and uh, they're they're actually uh, they're actually sort of relatives. They're relatives of relatives, okay. Uh, but uh, so anyway, we had we had a great time sitting with them. And, but uh, it turns out this fellow Jim is uh, uh, is he's about my age, and uh, so he served in the military about the same time I did, and he served in Vietnam. I served in Okinawa. And so we sat there at the at the meal table and ignored everybody else and just told war stories, you know, uh, the whole time. And uh, but the thing that struck me as I was listening to Jim's story, and at the time he was in Nam, he wasn't a believer. He didn't become become a believer till later in his life. But but as I was listening to his story and as he's telling his story, it was just so clear that even though at that point in his life he didn't know God, that God's hand was on his life and preserving him and protecting him and keeping him until he could until he could be saved. You know? and, and he tells a story in, in Vietnam about the, the first real time he heard an incoming. You know what I mean by incoming? You know, blew. The first time he heard it, he was he was in bed in his tent, you know, and he and he hears it coming in and he just sits up and then he hears the explosion and the explosion is the tent next to him, blew away the tent right next to him. You know? And just, you know, they didn't have smart bombs back then. And certainly the Viet Cong didn't have them, you know. So you think, wow, was he lucky? You don't know he wasn't lucky. It was God's hand on his life. Earlier, uh, several months ago, I, I had a chance to talk to another guy who was about my age. Uh, and, uh, and he was also in the military when I was. And he was on Okinawa, close to about the same time that I was on Okinawa. And uh, I spent some time when we were at uh, summer camp uh, this summer talking to this guy. We spent quite a bit of time talking. And, uh, you know, us old guys, we get together, we talk these old war stories, you know. And so, at any rate, uh, he was telling his whole thing. He also was not a believer when he was on Okinawa. But he was telling me how God had moved and directed in his life. And it was just so clear. I'm sitting here across the, across the dining room table in the dining room there with this guy. And I'm looking at a guy who has God's hand on his life. And it's an awesome thing. It's an awesome thing when you sit next to somebody and you look at him and you hear him talk and you're going, that was God. That was God moving and directing and protecting and guiding and, you know, through terrible situations and wonderful situations and, you know, positive things and negative things and God is directing. And, and in our own lives, there are just times when we need to know God's hand is on my life. And there's no time when we need to know that more than when we're just scared spitless. And here is Jacob, and I'm going to show you how scared he was here in a minute, but here is Jacob, and he is just absolutely terrified. And it doesn't get better, it gets worse. <laughs> okay? And, and so he's just really scared. Now, he has the promise of God. And, you know, and it's very easy for us sitting here in the 21st century and, and, you know, several thousand miles away and several thousand years away or, you know, hundreds of years away anyway, to look back on that time, you know, and go, well, Jacob, he should have just trusted God. Well, if you're inclined to say that to Jacob this morning, 
Just remind me and I'll say it to you the next time you're scared. Oh, just trust God. You got God's promises. Well, he did have God's promise. And ultimately, that's where he turns. As you see in the passage, that's where he turns. I'd be real concerned about the angels at this point. <laughs> now, if, if he finds out that Esau's coming and he looks around and the angels are leaving. <laughs> I'd be keeping an eye out of Yeah, yeah. Well, so I, I, think, I think the angels are there to say to Jacob, Jacob, my life, my hand is on your life. And I'm in this thing. Yeah. There's something here that found in my life and is that guilt your sin works against your faith. I mean you have a promise of God that you sit through thinking and I'm sure Jacob is thinking, God has promised to bless me that I'm in this mess for that Yeah. Oh really? Yeah. And and I've been there too, you know, you pray and pray and We've got promises, and you look at the sin in your own life, and well, part of this mess I'm trying to get out of is because of my sin, and I created it. Therefore, I really deserve whatever bad happens before yeah. Washington. And it really works against your faith. That's a that's a, a great point, and I and I'm pretty confident that that's exactly part of what's going on here. Well, okay, it's time to it's time it's time now to finally bite the bullet. And deal with this problem with Esau. So what does he do? Okay, he sends some messengers. Okay. He wants Esau to know he's coming. And, and so he gets these messengers and, and he starts to tell them about his brother. Now, as he's talking to these messengers about his brother, how does he refer to his brother? Pardon? My master, my Lord. There, my friends, is an indication of the transformation that has taken place in the heart of Jacob. Twenty years earlier, the one thing Jacob wanted more than anything else was to have the advantage over his brother. He was willing to lie. He was willing to cheat. He was willing to manipulate. He was willing to steal. He was willing to do anything he could to take first place. His whole life up to that point, he was the second born. His whole life up to that point, Esau was the first born. Esau had the preeminence. Esau had the favor of his daddy. Esau, you know, he had daddy's love. And Jacob, he just got the crumbs from the table. That's all he got. And the one thing he wanted more than anything else was have the preeminence over his brother. And he would do whatever it took to get the preeminence over his brother. And he did it. And he was successful. And he got the birthright. And he got the blessing. And then he had to flee for his life. And he's gone for 20 years. But now when he comes back, you'll notice that he refers, as he's talking to his servants or his messengers, he refers to Esau as his Lord. And there's been a transformation that's taken place in the heart of Jacob. Then you'll notice he gives them the message that he wants them to take to Esau. Okay. And he says to them, he says, when you go to Esau... This is exactly what I want you to tell him. And, and, and he goes into this. Uh, he says, you know, I've been away to Laban and I've been sojourning there till now. And I have all this stuff. OK, I've got the donkeys and the, and the uh, oxen, the donkeys and the flocks and the maidservants and the female servants. And I have sent. I have sent to, t- to tell you this, my Lord, so that so that I might find favor in your sight. And you go, hmm, wait a minute. <laughs> what is it? You know, how does all this work? You know, well, and the first thing I want you to point out that not only does he when he's speaking to his servants or his messengers, does he refer to Esau as his Lord? But in his message to Esau, he refers to Esau as his Lord and he refers to himself as Esau's servant. Now. There is no point in the story in which Jacob relinquishes the blessing. There's no point in the story in which he relinquishes the birthright. 
Okay. So whatever I say at this point, don't don't mistake me for saying that that he somehow is willing to give up the birthright and the blessing. That is that is something that that even though he connived, he heel grabbed, he did whatever he could to get it. It really is something that God gave him. It's not his to give up. Okay. God has given him the blessing and God has given him the birthright. Okay, so so he's really not forfeiting that. But what is significant here is that Jacob is taking the position of the servant. Even though, according to the blessing that he got from his father and according to the blessing that it was given to Esau, Specifically, in the blessing that's given to Esau, he says, you will serve your brother. Okay. So it's very clear in the blessing, and it's very clear in the birthright, that Jacob now has the preeminence. It's his by right. But Jacob's had a change of heart. And he no longer needs the preeminence over his brother. Because his heart has changed. And so now Jacob, even though by right he has the preeminence, in practice he takes the position of the lesser. In practice he becomes the servant. Doesn't it? Doesn't that sound so biblical? I mean. Jacob now knows he has God's blessing and he has the birthright. He knows he has all that. So he knows now it finally dawns on him that it's been given to him by God and he doesn't have to grab for it. And because it's, he doesn't have to grab for it, he can take the position of a servant. And we have... Perhaps the best example of that in the Lord Jesus Himself in the upper room at the Last Supper. John chapter 13, there at the beginning of the chapter. What does it say? It says that Jesus, knowing where He had come from and knowing where He was going, got up from the table and wrapped Himself with a towel and began to wash the disciples' feet. And that passage just fires my imagination because because I just think this is this is the Lord of glory, folks. This is the Lord of glory, and he's getting down on his hands and knees and he's washing dirty, smelly feet. Now, how can he do that? He can do that because he knows where he's come from and he knows where he's going. He was secure in who he was. And because he was secure in who he was, he could humble himself and become a servant. And, and then Peter tells us later, he says, he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Why? That he may exalt you at the proper time. And so the transformation that we've seen in the life of Jacob up till now at this point is that Jacob has reached the point where he's going, I don't have to grab for it anymore. I don't have to cling to this stuff. I can just get down on my knees and I can serve my brother Esau. Because God will take care of this whole thing. Because God will honor His promises and His covenant to me. And so... So there's this transformation that has taken place in the heart of Jacob. Now, the other thing is that Jacob really wants Esau to know this. That Esau really doesn't have anything that Jacob wants now. Except his friendship. That's all he wants. And, and so that's the significance of Jacob's recitation of all this stuff he has. Okay, He's not boasting here. Basically, what he's saying is, Esau, I got everything I could ever possibly want. I don't need dad's stuff. And I don't need your stuff. It's not, it's not a boast. It's not an arrogance. It's an assurance to Esau 
I don't need I don't need that stuff. You know, God has blessed me. I have everything I could possibly ever dream of or want. I have wives, I have concubines, I have I have uh, kids, I have I have donkeys and camels and oxen and flocks and I've, I've got everything a person could ever want. Esau, I'm not coming after your stuff. And so that's the significance of the messengers as they leave and they go off to talk to Esau. So Jacob just simply wants Esau to know, I'm coming back home. And if you'll just sit there and wait, <laughs> I'll come visit you. <laughs> Is that how it turns out? What do the messengers come back and tell him? <laughs> okay, he hears two two items of really bad news, and the first is that Esau's coming. Okay, now that's not what he wanted. You know, he didn't want Esau taking any initiative in this thing. Okay, uh, I just assume Esau stay there in Seir. Now, it, it is interesting when he gets back to the land of promise. It's a while before he gets back to see Dad. We'll see this. It's kind of interesting how long it is before he actually gets back to Beersheba to see his father. And he's got to go through some other steps before he gets there. And one of the steps he needs to get to before he gets to dad is he's got to go back through Bethel again. Okay? And he's got to bury some idols. He's got some things that have to happen in his life before he can get back to dad. Okay? And I think, I'm pretty sure that in his mind he's thinking, I've got some things I need to do before I go to Seir to see Esau. But Esau doesn't give him that chance. <laughs> Esau takes the initiative. Now, we really don't know what's going on in Esau's mind at this point. Because the Scripture doesn't tell us. And we don't really have to know what's going on in Esau's mind at this point. What we need to know is what's going on in Jacob's mind about what he thinks is going on in Esau's mind. <laughs> okay? That's what we really need to know. Okay. Now, I have some theories about what's going on in Esau's mind. And in the next subsequent lesson or two, I'll, uh, I may divulge what my theories are. But, but ultimately, it's not really critical that we know what actually is going on in his mind. But from Jacob's perspective, this is a pretty scary thing. Esau has grabbed the initiative. And he has come. But he has not come alone. This is the man who lives by the sword and who is apparently at this time in the process of conquering Seir. Who now comes with 400 men. Okay. Now, from Jacob's perspective, this is the worst case scenario. Now, Jacob doesn't know for sure that Esau's intentions are hostile. But how would you interpret it <laughs> if you were Jacob? I would think they were armed. <laughs> I have no doubt these guys were armed. It actually doesn't tell us that, but I have no doubt. I mean, this is a guy who lives by the sword. I don't think he and his buddies went anywhere <laughs> unless they were armed. Okay. I have no doubt they were armed. But there are two possibilities here. Uh, I, I see two possibilities. Some other people see others, but I, I really only see one, two viable possibilities of what's going on in Esau's mind. One is he really does want to settle a score. Okay? And he's coming to settle a score. Now, the scale at which he might want to do that could be open for interpretation because if he really wanted to settle a score really brutally, uh, you know, he could have killed the messengers and taken Jacob by surprise, okay? He obviously didn't do that. So, but there is the possibility that he was really coming to settle the score. Okay. The other possibility, and, and I think this is a very viable possibility, is that Esau is as scared of Jacob as Jacob is of Esau. Now, Jacob, Jacob doesn't have any armed men. He doesn't have an army, okay, like Esau has. So, in, in that sense, Esau has no reason to be afraid. And, I, and I'm relatively confident that Esau would have ascertained that from the messengers when they came to him. Uh, you know, well, what's Esau got? You know, does he, has he got any, you know, soldiers with him? You know, I'm sure he tried to figure that out. But why would, why would Esau be afraid of Jacob? Because 
has a preeminence. Okay, because he has a preeminence. Why else? He's coming back. Okay, what's the most obvious thing, folks? More obvious than that. More obvious than that. Why would Esau fear Jacob? Well, yeah. Well, Esau didn't, uh, Jacob didn't try to kill Esau. Esau killed Jacob. Yeah. He knows Jacob's a heel grabber. That's how he knows him. He knows you can't trust this dude. He'll lie, he'll cheat, he'll steal, he'll do anything. So it's possible that the reason that Esau is coming with 400 men is he's covering his bases. Because he doesn't trust Jacob. You know? So, okay, he says this, but, you know, what is he really thinking? You know, and I better make sure I'm safe here. Okay. Now, like I say, I'm not going to commit myself on this at this point. I may never commit myself, but, uh, but, but there are these couple reasons. But in Jacob's mind, Jacob's not looking at things from Esau's point of view. <laughs> Esau has reason to be afraid of Jacob. Jacob's looking at it from his point of view, and he's thinking, this is pretty scary. And so Jacob does two things. Now, the first thing he does is he divides his entire entourage up. Okay, all his people and all his flocks and his herds and his camels and everything. He divides them into two companies. Why does he do that? Yeah. Uh, if Esau attacks one company or one group, then hopefully the second group will have enough time to escape. Okay? So... You know, it's a tough decision to make, but it's kind of like saying, you know, okay, I'll sacrifice half of them if I have to, you know. Okay, and, and we, you know, it's pretty easy to say, and some commentators do say, that the problem here is Esau's not, uh, Jacob's not, you know, really acting in faith here. That he, you know, he's trying to figure out how to protect his family, and he's really not thinking, well, God has made me promises, and so therefore I can trust the promises. I, I don't agree with that, personally. I think, he's, I think Jacob's acting wisely and responsibly here. It is one thing to say, I'm trusting God to protect me. It's another thing to disregard my responsibilities to others and then say, I'm trusting God to protect them. You know, I could say, well, yeah, I know my wife is driving around on bald tires, but, you know, I don't think God wants me to spend the money for tires so God will protect her. Now, that's faith, right? That's not faith. That's irresponsibility. Yeah, that's exactly right. I have faith, but I still take reasonable precautions. So I don't think Jacob's acting out of faith here. I think he's acting responsibly. He's trying to figure out how am I going to protect all these people that I'm responsible for, I'm accountable for, okay? And people, of course, whom he loves. So he, he divides them up into these two companies, and then what's the next thing he does? He prays. And folks, this is an awesome prayer. I wish I could pray like this when I'm scared. This is an awesome prayer. First is his invocation. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. Okay? He's, it first comes this invocation. And, and the significance of this invocation is as he's moving into this Prayer in which he's going to lay this terrible fear that he has before the Lord. As he moves into this, the first thing he does is he clarifies in his mind exactly who it is he's talking to. This is, this is not one of Laban's deities here that can be hidden away in a saddlebag and set on. This is the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac. And this is Yahweh who spoke to me. And, 
And it's like it's like Esau or excuse me, Jacob here. Jacob here is identifying the covenant God of his grandfather and the covenant God of his father as his own covenant God. He says he is the God Elohim of Abraham and God the Elohim of Isaac. But he says he is the Yahweh who spoke to me. He is the covenant God who spoke to me and told me to go home. And so he's, he, he comes in this sense of reverence and awe in his invocation. He comes with this identification of the real God to whom he's praying in this moment of crisis. And then, and then the next part of his prayer is just, just remarkable contrition. This is not the Jacob of old. This is a new man. And he says, I am undeserving. I am unworthy of all this loving kindness, chesed, covenant faithfulness that you have shown to me. There again, it's that identification that he's in this covenant relationship with God. And that this loving kindness, this hesed that he's experienced, and this faithfulness is all part of God's covenant with him. And he says, I, I don't deserve any of this. I don't deserve any of this. I am a nobody. I am a little person. He says, he says, with my staff alone, I cross this Jordan River. So he's standing there at the confluence of the Jebek and the Jordan River and he's remembering how 20 years earlier he'd come across the Jordan River and he's, in his mind's eye, he's remembering coming across with nothing in his hand but that staff to support him as he crossed the river. And he says, now I've come back to this place, he said, and I have these two great companies. And this is all you're doing, God. It's all you're doing. It's not me at all. Everything I have, God, you have done. I am completely unworthy of it all. And then he moves from his contrition, he moves then into the real petition, his real desperate plea. And he says, he says basically what he's doing is he's owning up to his fear. He's saying, God, God, would you deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau? He says, because I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm afraid he's going to come and he's going to attack me and he's going to attack the women with the children. Translated there in your translation is probably the women with the children. But, but the sense there is the, is the women on the children. The significance of that is, is the picture of a picture of a mother bird on her little chicks. Jacob has seen the vulnerability of his wives and the vulnerability of his little children. And the, and the remarkable brutality that he anticipates could be in the heart of Esau. That's how scared he is. This guy has a palpable fear of his brother. He is... I want to say paralyzed by fear. He's not paralyzed, but he's, he's just overcome with this terrible fear of what could be about to happen. And he comes to God and he says, God, I am just absolutely terrified. Would you deliver me? Because you said to me, that you would prosper me and make my descendants like the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. And so what we see here in this, in this prayer of Jacob's is we see first this invocation of the true, living, great, mighty, majestic, gracious God. Then we see this element of contrition, of recognition of, of his own undeserved position, his littleness, that anything that he is is of God. 
and he's remembering back at how God has blessed him. And then he moves on and he, and he, and he, and he, and he owns his fear. He, he admits his fear and his dread to God. And then he reminds God of the promise that God has made to him. However, you know, he could make his descendants as a number of the sands of the sea without him being around. Yeah, and, and actually with a whole different set of descendants. I was thinking about this yesterday. I was thinking, I was thinking um, what about Job? Job had many descendants. But that's after the first ten died. So, but the thing that strikes me about this prayer of Jacob's, as I said, I, 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 I wish I could learn to pray like this when I'm, a, when I'm afraid. Because we, we all really have things in our life that we confront from time to time that are absolutely terrifying. Sometimes it's relationships going sour. Sometimes it's a job situation, finances. Sometimes it's just the world around us, the politics and the, the way the world's moving terrifies us. It, it can be any host of things that, that frighten us, health issues, uh, Safety and security issues, just all kinds of things that that just overwhelm us with the way they threaten us. And in those in those times when we are just confronted with our Esau's, confronted with those things that terrify us, if we could just learn to pray like Jacob. If we could learn to identify who this God is that we really serve. And if we would just, before Him, just acknowledge, okay, God, You've already done far more in my life than I ever deserved. So going back to Mike's issue, you know, about how oftentimes, you know, when we're, we're in these situations and we think about how we failed and, and so, you know, well, you know, I really guess I do deserve whatever comes my way. Well, clearly Jacob deserved whatever came his way. But the thing that he's reminded and he's being reminded of here is that God has already been gracious to him, far more gracious than he deserved. And then he owns his fear. You know, if we could just own our fear, God, God, I'm scared. This thing's overwhelming me. I know I shouldn't be afraid, and, but I'm just scared, God. But then, then there's that, that critical point where he goes, but God, you said. But God, you said. And so I'm just moving forward on what you said. And everything else, God, is up to you. Everything else is in your hands. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking how, how oftentimes are we so cavalier in, in our discipline of the Word? How oftentimes in our study or our reading or our memorization of the Scripture do we go, well, you know, I'm busy or, you know, this passage that I'm looking at today really is... I'll put it off a day or two or tomorrow or next week or, you know, or, you know, at some other season in my life, I'll have time to be devoted to the scriptures. But I was thinking, man, if we don't have the scriptures in our hearts and in our minds, when the Esau's come, what do we have? What have we got to pray with? If our minds and our hearts have not been saturated with the Scriptures. And when we cavalier put off the discipline of Scripture in our lives, what we're saying is, I'll get around to that before the Esau's come in my life. But remember, in Jacob's case, Esau grabbed the initiative. Esau came before he expected him. And in our lives, the Esau's come when we don't expect them. And so it behooves us to have our hearts already saturated with God's Word so that in our desperate plea we can say, God, 
you said thus and so. Okay? Well, next week we'll read this intriguing passage about all these presents that he sends to Esau. Okay? <laughs>